Hello and welcome to this PSG Think Big series podcast. In this program, Alicia Seckham speaks to Michael Sachs about how trade-offs in the budget are affecting South Africa's education and healthcare systems. Hello and welcome to the Think Big series, a collection of dialogues with leading speakers brought to you by PSG. I'm Alicia Seckham and today we're talking give and take. Finance Minister Enoch Galongwana in his 2023 budget speech said, this is not an austerity budget. It's a budget that makes tough trade-offs in the interests of the country's short and long-term prosperity. What he didn't factor in at that point was a 7.5% increase on the public sector wage bill. Gorongwana since said that the macro fiscal position presented in the budget has changed adversely and significantly. So what's the real cost of this additional hefty 37.4 billion rand on the books? To get into the nitty gritty of it all, we're joined by Michael Sachs. He's adjunct professor at the Southern Center for Inequality Studies at WITS, where he leads the Public Economy Project, a research program on fiscal policy and public finance. He also teaches at the Witz School of Economics and Finance and serves as Deputy Chair of the Finance and Fiscal Commission, which is an independent constitutional body that advises government. Michael, thanks so much for being with us today. And I'm going to start off with the fact that we talk about limited resources brought on by an economy that isn't growing. We talk about the binding constraints of an unsustainable debt to GDP ratio, especially in a rising interest rate and no growth environment. And in that context, now needing to fund an additional 37.4 billion rand in expenditure. Where's the money going to come from? Well, I should start out by saying that I, I don't uh, agree with those national treasury figures uh, and the claim that the wages have increased by 7.5%. Uh, I won't go into the reasons, but I believe they're double counting. And actually, there's a real dilemma here, because from the point of view of public servants, the salary increase actually amounts to three, just above three percent. In, uh, as you mentioned, an inflationary environment with a cost of living shock, this is a real fall in the income of public servants. And it's not the first year this has happened. In fact, in 2020, uh, public servants had a real fall in their income again in 2022. So there's been three or four years of falling real income for teachers, nurses, doctors, and police officers. On the other hand, it is also significantly above what was put into the budget. So this is the nature of the trade-offs we, we face. They are not easy trade-offs because uh, when you look at it from the point of view of the public servants, it's a real decline in income. When you look at it from the point of view of the fiscus, it's a significant escalation of debt. So how do we bridge that gap? How do we uh, honestly have a discussion that reaches a conclusion uh, that balances those interests? And that's the nature of all the trade-offs we face. The underlying fundamental issue, as you also mentioned correctly, is that the economy has been in decline and stagnation for more than a decade. Our per capita income has been declining. And uh, while the constitution uh, imposes a policy imperative on government to secure a rising access to economic and social goods, if the resource base of the economy continues to decline and stagnate in the way it has over the de last decade, 
it's going to be impossible to meet those commitments and the trade-offs that we face are going to be increasingly acute. Absolutely, because like you say, the reality is that when your revenue line isn't growing as fast as your expenditure demands are, you come up against hard choices, right? Trade-offs, like you say, needing to be made to manage a budget. And anyone running a household will understand that. But it's how expenditure choices and decisions are being made, Michael, that often gets backs up, right? Because implicit trade-offs are being made behind the scenes. Before we get into the detail of that, are you worried about the credibility of South Africa's budget and where spend is being directed as spending pressures rise? So I think we have a robust budget system and a lot of the uh, expenditure allocation that takes place, say, between provinces or between municipalities and across that government departments is driven by very uh, robust uh, formulas. So there's not a lot of discretion in the allocation of expenditure. Um, I do think that the budget uh, uh, has become, there is a great deal of uncertainty in the economy, probably more uncertainty about the future direction of the economy than we have seen in our lifetimes. And to the extent that the budget depends on revenue and revenue depends on the, the path of economic growth, um, everybody is struggling to predict what will happen in the next few years, not only the government. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, the thing that we do control is expenditure. And the budget in past years, when the budget system was designed, the idea was that the path of expenditure put down for the next three years in what we call the medium-term expenditure framework uh, was supposed to be um, reflective of a real uh, uh, estimate of the cost of implementing government's program. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, over the last 10 years, but particularly over the last five years, I must say, government's program has been increasingly conflicted within itself. There are many different policies moving in many different directions. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of uncertainty, not only about the economy, but about what government's policy program is. And in a context of that uncertainty, the budget has become less and less credible, not because there's a, a dearth of technical expertise in Treasury or something like that, but because government's program is more and more confused. And so Treasury has increasingly resorted to uh, using the budget, not as a, a good estimate of how much are we gonna spend in the next three years, but as a negotiating position. And a good example of this is exactly where you started with the wages. Uh, the number that was put in the budget for the wage increase this year was zero. So the budget was constructed on the assumption that there would be a zero increase wages for all public servants implying in this high inflation environment, a very large shock to their incomes. And I don't think that was ever realistic or ever credible. And that's the reason why we're now left with this large apparent shock on the budget numbers. Like you 
say, Michael, you know, budget allocation is supposed to have been reflective of the policy objectives being targeted, but it's all gotten a bit messy at this point. Do you see these objectives being influenced by the fact that we are in the run-up to the 2024 elections? I mean, no matter what the finance minister says, there's certainly a growing fear that this could see the ANC embark on populist macroeconomic policies such as the basic income grant, for example, in an attempt to cling to power, and that triggering some of the haphazardness we're seeing. I think the first thing we, we have to say is that a budget is a political process. Uh, there's a reason why Parliament decides on the budget. Parliament is the elected representatives of the people, and when you implement a budget, you are every budget decision you make redistributes uh, income from one part of the population to the other. And often these are based on value judgments. And that's why we delegate it to a democratic process rather than a technical process. Also, I should say that uh, in the past, uh, South Africa has not exhibited the type of election-related populism that you see in other countries. For example, uh, just the other week, uh, the president uh, Erdogan of Turkey was re-elected a week or two before his election. Uh, he raised the salaries of all public servants in Turkey by 45%, uh, which you can imagine was a massive shock to the budget. And he did a number of other things. So these things happen in many jurisdictions. Uh, and we've never seen behavior of that nature in South Africa, where you get sudden... Uh, um, obviously populist moves that completely undermine the credibility of the fiscal system. Nevertheless, of course, uh, the budget is a political process uh, that relies on a democratic mandate. And as we go into elections, it does put in an additional uh, uh, element of pressure onto the decision makers who ultimately uh, have to respond to popular impulses. Um, so I think uh, I, I'm not too worried. Of course, as we go into it, to the election, things like the, the, the resources made available for the extension of the social grant system, um, it, it would be kind of, from a political point of view, madness to withdraw the COVID social relief of di distress grant just before an election. I don't think uh, any politician would agree to that. So it does certainly impose constraints, but I don't worry too much about sudden kind of irrational moves of the kind that you saw in Turkey a couple of weeks ago. This because you say we are looking at a robust system that's formula driven, objective driven. Um, I've got to put it in the spotlight though, Michael, that objective driven formula approach, right? Uh, because you talked about a messiness and a skewness to where uh, funds are being allocated at this point in time. Are you worried that this objective-driven formula approach doesn't necessarily stay intact, given some of the trade-offs or compromises we've already been seen made? Look, I am worried, um, but my worry is not for a sudden, uh, very large movement this year. My worry is rather about an ongoing erosion of the credibility of the budget and the credibility of budget institutions on the back of 
um, an erosion of the credibility of government programs. So, so you know, a, a, a budget depends on economic growth, and that makes clear trade-offs. Yeah. Uh, at the center of government, from the presidency uh, in particular, but uh, from cabinet more generally, and it seems that the, the major maker in, in, in our system is not even the, the institutions of the constitution, but a, a body like the NEC of the ANC, which none of us really know on what basis it makes decisions. If, if that's how policy is made, then increasingly we might end up with a, uh, an attempt to have our cake uh, after we have also eaten it. Um, so an attempt to, to pander to all needs across the economy and not confront the trade-offs that are necessary. And if at a political level, uh, the leadership of the country is unable to perform its role, which is to make and explain these trade-offs, then the people who are doing the technical work at the Treasury are increasingly going to have um, the, the grass cut from underneath them. And slowly over time, the institutions of the budget that were established in the 1990s will begin to er erode. As I yes. mentioned, we previously had uh, uh, a medium-term expenditure framework that reflected the best estimate of the whole of government program. At the moment, uh, we are far from that, and there are many uncertainties. And one example is the basic income grant uh, debate, which has been on the table now for um, uh, since 2020. And um, government doesn't appear any closer to concluding that debate. So we don't know how much will be needed. What is the framework for this decision? Uh, in the next year, never mind in the next three years. But of course, any decision you take today is going to have consequences for three to five to ten years into the future. And if if uh, political leadership is unable to to reach those kind of decisions in good time, uh, I'm afraid the budget's going to look increasingly shaky. Absolutely, because you talk of erosion of one kind, but there's erosion of another to consider as well. The more that goes, uh, you know, uh, gets spent in wages, for example, the less that goes towards bulking up resources to do the job, to deliver on objectives, compromising in many instances, Michael, the quality of service delivery as well. The minister said that they're looking at, um, you know, restricting previously planned recruitment, delaying projects funded. Uh, in the budget, allowing departments to shift funds towards the increased compensation costs and implementing rationalization measures as well. What are some of the consequences you're seeing of that specifically homing in on perhaps the education and healthcare sectors? So often the way these types of questions are posed is to begin with the what we call the economic classification of expenditure, which is what are the inputs that you're buying to deliver the services? And those inputs can be uh, people in the form of salaries. It could be capital expenditure. It could be goods and services. And many people will say, well, the, the budget is with the budget is that we spend too on salaries and compensation, and we should spend more on capital because capital, they believe, uh, generates economic um, the problem with that is that uh, um, the, the, the decisions are interlinked. 
when you take a decision to shift money from, say, salaries towards capital, uh, there are certain the way you think about policy areas uh, are, is going to be affected because something like education, for instance, is inherently labor intensive. Education is fundamentally about teaching. Well, the education budget is about 80% of it is salaries. And this is not only in South Africa, this is the case everywhere in the world. This is the nature of education budgets. So if you take a decision to shift money away from salaries towards capital, you, the implication is that you are taking a decision to spend less money on education. Uh, and this is exactly what is taking place in the, in the budget because there's been emphasis in re reducing salaries. The sectors that are being uh, uh, reduced in terms of their budget allocations are those that are human activity intensive, and those are healthcare, education, and criminal justice. And so, um, again, it's not necessarily that the, the uh, trade-off, the, the, the wrong decision is being made. I'm not necessarily arguing that. I'm saying that I think the minister can uh, do a better job of explaining the trade-offs that will result. If you reduce the real income of teachers um, and you also reduce the goods and services budget for, for education, and, and those are the two essential components of consumption, if you do that, uh, the likelihood is, is that you will erode the quality of the education system, which is already uh, in a dire state and in very poor quality. As we heard uh, last week, the the um, eighty percent of uh, or eighty one percent of uh, grade four learners in South Africa cannot read for meaning in any language. Now, the solution to that problem may not necessarily involve the allocation of more resources, in the sense that you really need to improve the design of the system and make different types of trade-offs about, for instance the assessment and performance appraisal of teachers, as an example. Uh, you need to address those types of issues. Nevertheless, if you're not prepared to address those uh, programmatic changes and reforms in the system, and you proceed to reduce the resources available for textbooks, reduce the salaries paid to teachers, reduce the number of teachers, all of which is taking place in the budget now, uh, you can expect that the education system will uh, uh, erode in quality. Michael, so where you say the overarching problem is that government or treasury hasn't been explicit about how or why these decisions are being made, right? Why one expenditure choice is trumping uh, the other at any given time. If we have to use an example that, uh, you know, you actually mentioned off air, looking at the education budget, higher education is receiving a greater budget allocation Basic education is seeing slower growth in the spend it's receiving. Why is that the case? You know, make an implicit policy choice like that make sense for us. Uh, absolutely. Um, there's, a, there's a, you know, economics will tell you that, uh, or, or various studies will tell you that um, the, the, the foundation of the education system starts in, in early childhood. So you need to invest very strongly in early childhood education. 
Then uh, the next important thing is the foundation phase. And uh, as I just mentioned, uh, if 81% of kids in the, at the end of the foundation phase can't read for meaning, it's doubtful that they will uh, um, progress through the rest of their education career. Um, the next level is kind of matric. And, and then we go into higher education and skills development. Now, it seems like the spending priorities, at least since about 2015, 2016, with the rise of the fall movement, have been inverted. We've seen a huge uh, increase in spending on higher education. And I yeah. might say within higher education, the increase is targeted very much on universities and not on the uh, vocational skills training. So we've seen a very large escalation of spending on the higher education system, while the basic the, the resources available to the basic education system, the number of teachers in the system have been reduced. There are uh, moves now towards uh, increasing spending for early childhood development, which is a good thing. But again, this is one area where the trade-offs are not being uh, very clearly explained by the politicians. And uh, quite frankly, I think while the studies tell you that you should start at the bottom, um, the political factors are inverted. So the student uh, population in universities are the most vocal and organized, and they are in high schools and their parents are probably less powerful. The least powerful people in the system are primary school and early childhood development beneficiaries. So the spending priority is beginning to reflect the uh, simple logic of politics. And that's why I say it's not so much a sudden decision that gets taken place before an election that is the problem, but an ongoing a failure of political leadership to take to lead the country uh, in a different direction uh, from the one that is simply mandated by populist impulses. Yeah, lead it by, uh, you know, moving to where the noise is and placating that first. It's only half an hour, not nearly enough time, Michael, to get into all the decisions being made and, you know, and why. But why the resistance? to making these choices explicit so that this is a conversation we don't necessarily have to be having, but that departments themselves are privy to so that they're better able to you know, manage their resource constraints. And so that there's more transparency to better assess where the money is allocated. It's being allocated because that's where it will be put to good use. I think, unfortunately, um, we live in a society with extremely high levels of inequality and political polarization. And uh, in that context, we've been unable to construct a, a political consensus that, that makes these trade-offs. We've, we've preferred to uh, try to make everybody happy at the same time. That seems to be uh, the approach. I mean, I, I often think one of the great virtues and strengths of the liberation movement in South Africa was that it brought together a very wide section of society behind a common program. So everybody came into one tent. Mm. But uh, when you begin governing, if you continue to govern in that way where everybody 
uh, you meet with the one constituency and you promise them that they can have everything they want. And then you meet with another constituency and you also promise them that they can have everything they want. And you don't see your role as brokering difficult. These are painful trade-offs that have to be made. Um, and you're not prepared to take risks, including with your own political career. Uh, I'm afraid we're going to be stuck in this position of stagnation until forces emerge that are prepared to unlock and unblock this uh, political logjam. Because like you say, Michael, being explicit about the choices being made is needing to um, recognize the fact that we can't simply say we want free higher education, we want more early childhood development, we want uh, you know, basic income grants without crafting and designing a policy that will shift the resources in that direction because consequentially, you're forcing down in an unplanned way then expenditure uh, somewhere else. So what would you, what would your advice be to starting to get this more right? So I think we have to recognize that there can be no development without sacrifices and there can be no uh, serious reform of the social policy system have without sacrifices. I'll give you one example. You, you, you know, it's, I'm not saying that it's impossible to have, for instance, free higher education as well as, as um, uh, a strong basic education. But then we have to sit down and ask, well, our uh, higher education system might be free for the students, but somebody has to pay. And the major cost in that system is essentially the salaries of people like me, professors in universities. So if we want to have free higher education, the question is, what are the sacrifices that are going to be made within the university system? Um, and if we simply say, no, we're going to provide free education for all, but we're not going to discuss those issues, we're going to allow the system to just proceed uh, without making, without any constituency within it making a sacrifice, uh, we are going to be unable to square the circles across the system. So um, uh, government talks a lot about social compacts. But these social compacts don't seem to involve anybody making a serious sacrifice. And I think uh, affluent South Africans, um, uh, employees in government, uh, people who provide services, uh, various levels of government, the private sector, um, it would be nice if we could proceed on a basis that everybody just uh, contributes according to their ability. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, we need to be able to redistribute some of the resources more effectively from some places to others, and that requires sacrifice on, on the part of all of us. These, these are not problems. You know, government doesn't generate itself the resources that it uses to finance its operations. It extracts those resources out of the real economy. So we have to be more explicit about the sacrifices that we are prepared to make as a society in order to have development. And that means um, prioritizing, I suppose. It could mean that, that we want to have, you know, um, some, a, a, a reverend once said, we want it all, we want it here, we want it now. And this seems to continue to be the, the policy mantra uh, of the leadership of the country. Um, which is unable to, to discriminate and say, we cannot have X because we think Y is more important. 
Michael, having worked for many years in you know, public policy and political strategy in South Africa, you are a part of a body that you know, advises government right now. And while you know, you're having that conversation, one wonders the extent to which you're having these kind of conversations with private sector as well, because the assumption is what you've outlined or just outlined is something that's difficult to digest when you've got a private sector working in an economy that is constraining a lot of the growth potential that could drive that revenue? So um, my view is that, you know, many private sector people uh, look at the situation and they believe that, uh, you know, the state is failing and, and the state is ineffective and lacks capacity and the private sector is effective and has the capacity. So why can't the state move aside and allow, bring the private sector in to do the job if the state can't uh, now, there's some, you know, obviously there's some uh, truth in the fact that private sector has a lot of capacity and the state sector doesn't. But the reason for that situation, in my view, is the fundamentally segregated nature of our society, in which you have a private sector that essentially feeds off and lives by an, an affluent 10% of the population that can afford services. And we have a vast majority of the population that depends on government. Effective states uh, can, an, an effective state and an effective budget can only exist in a common society. So the question is, how do we have one health system in which the poor and the rich uh, are side by side in hospital beds? And that will require um, not only the private sector providing technical expertise to government, it will require sacrifices on the part of uh, the affluent in society who currently benefit from a, a, an extremely expensive and inefficient private sector health system. Uh, we need to begin to shift those resources and build a common health system. And I could say the same about policing, I could say the same about education. So um, I think the private sector is happy to, to talk about um, contributing skills and capacity, but uh, less vocal when it comes to the kind of uh, sacrifices that are required uh, on, on, on their part. Yeah, and Michael, that of course pointing to the huge trust deficit that uh, sits between public and private sector right now that needs to be closed. But that a conversation for another day. Thanks so much for having joined us today. It's been such a pleasure catching up with you and to our audience. Thank you for watching. Remember, the social media campaign on the series is hashtag Think Big PSG. The series is free, it's shareable, it's open to anyone interested, whether you're a PSG client or not. So please keep the conversation going. Until next time, from me, Alicia Sekum, it's bye for now.